This is HEC Media. Welcome to Talking with Authors, a program dedicated to speaking with some of the best-selling authors around, covering many different genres. I'm your podcast host, Rod Milam, for HEC Media. With the help of independent bookstore Left Bank Books and the St. Louis County Library, we are able to sit down with amazing writers and thought leaders to discuss their work, their inspiration, and what makes them special. By the way, you can also watch video versions of most of these interviews by going to hecmedia.org. Today, our author is Newbery Award-winning writer Erin Entrada Kelly. We spoke with her at the HEC Media Studios in St. Louis as she was on her summer book tour in September of 2019 when her book, Leilani of the Distant Sea, was hot off the presses. This New York Times bestselling children's book writer was born in Lake Charles, Louisiana, and started off her career as a journalist in the South. Then she relocated to the American Northeast and became an author in 2015, and only two years later in 2017, she won the Newbery Award for her third book, Hello Universe. Writing for and being able to relate to middle schoolers and young people is clearly a passion for Erin and Trouda Kelly, and she knows that being able to provide a sense of belonging in book form for her audience is very important. That's the, the greatest gift that books give is that it, it shows young people that they're not alone even when they feel very alone. Whenever I was in middle school and I was picked last for the teams in basketball, that, that's a very palpable feeling, right? When you get out there, like you don't want anyone to pass you the ball because you don't want to embarrass yourself. But then when nobody passes you the ball, then you feel bad because nobody's passing you the ball. And that's kind of what it's like in middle school and, and what it's like to be a kid. There never seems to be the right answer. You're just constantly trying to figure it out. And in the book we'll learn about and talk about today, Leilani of the Distant Sea, we'll learn about the trials of adolescent girls and boys through a lens of fantasy. That and how this award-winning Filipino-American writer's career came to be and how she plays her role in the world. New York Times bestselling and Newbery Award-winning author Erin Entrada Kelly on this episode of Talking with Authors from HEC Media and HEC Books. Here's our host and interviewer this time, Brenda Madden. Erin Entrada Kelly, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So the book came out uh, beginning of September, and it's been kind of a whirlwind since then. The reviews have been amazing. You're on tons of lists. And what's that been like? It's been really overwhelming and very surreal. You know, anytime you put a book into the world, you never know what's going to happen. And especially because it's my first fantasy and other, my other books have been contemporary fiction. So the fact that it's been so well received and readers have seemed to embrace it and love it is, it's been really incredible. Has it been kind of funny to get that much attention too since writing can be so solitary? And It is. It's kind of strange because, you know, I always say writing is a solitary business, but publishing is a team effort. So you spend all this time, you know, usually during the summer, especially for young adult and middle grade authors. During the summer, you're kind of holed up writing and then all of a sudden you're let loose into the world. So it can be, um, I actually love it a lot because I like to interact, especially with young readers, and they're so full of energy, and I love doing school visits and going to library events. Um, whenever you're on tour, I think the hardest part is the in-between time, because you get all this energy, especially from the kids, and then when it's over, you're immediately tired again, so it's kind of a roller coaster. Tell us about Lilani and, and 
Melania of the distancy, the, the story and the plot? Sure. So when I sat down and set out to write this book, I thought I want to write a heroine who was like I was at 12. And what I mean by that is a lot of the heroes that we read about are they're destined from birth or they happen upon a rabbit hole or a door that takes them somewhere. And I wanted a character who was not particularly extraordinary in her village, just a very ordinary girl. And one of the things that is very special about her, though, is that she has this tremendous compassion for the people she loves and for people in general. So any mission that she sets forth on, especially if there's danger ahead, you know it will be for reasons outside of herself. So you have Lalani, who's an unlikely heroine because she's a very small 12-year-old girl and she lives in a, in a, on an island called San Laguita that's very oppressed. And the villagers believe that to the north of them across the distant sea is another island where all of life's riches are. And so for generations, they've sent their strongest men to cross the sea. And the men never survive. Um, and they usually go and cruise on these big, strong ships. And uh, here's Lalani, the little 12-year-old girl in a very small scouting boat that can barely navigate the water who sets forth on this mission. This is also a beautiful book just as an object. The illustrations are gorgeous. And you've had illustrations in your other novels, but it felt like next level in this one. Um, how did all that come about? Thank you. The, the illustrations are incredible, and I feel like it really adds a whole other level to the book. The book itself lent itself more to these kind of uh, beautiful interior illustrations because I have the sections that are uh, about the creatures, and it's second person, and I wanted the reader to, to know that they are entering a different narrative, and so the illustration serves as a as a clue to say, okay, you're about to enter the creature's minds now. And so I told my editor, I said, I really think this book needs interior illustrations because you have these little slices of second person narratives throughout the book. And she agreed. I have such a great relationship with my publisher and the whole team there at HarperCollins. And they went on the hunt for an illustrator. And they found Leanne Cho, who illustrated the book, and I believe she was still in art school. So she's very much a young, up-and-coming illustrator, and I, I know we'll see more from her because she's so incredibly talented. You had mentioned that uh, this is your first time sort of doing a fantasy book, and I sort of thought, oh, everything in here is is fantasy or everything is imagined. And when I started reading and as each time you're sort of introduced to something that was sort of new and sort of of another world, I thought, oh, my gosh, like, how do you come up with all this stuff? And uh, then I found your on your website, the resource section where you talk about the roots of uh, Filipino folklore that you kind of began with and uh, built on for this. Yes. So I knew that I wanted to draw from Philippine mythology and Filipino folklore, but I also knew that I wanted space to make them native to the book as well and to the world within the book. And I grew up in the States, so I didn't want to necessarily take uh, folklore that was deeply rooted in the Philippines and use that as a direct interpretation. So I, I took what existed in the mythology and I used that to reimagine what this creature would be like 
in San Laguita and Isa where Lilani is. And some of the creatures are largely from my imagination, but many of them are rooted in Filipino folklore. And, um, you know, with uh, there's a creature in the book, Datasa Ulad, who's half eel and half woman. And there are so many uh, cultures that have mermaid folklore and sea creature folklore. So um, that's one thing about mythology and folklore across cultures. There's so many things that are connected, which I find so interesting. You'll see giants in one uh, culture. You'll see giants in another culture. Mermaids, witches, sorcerers, you know. So I definitely used a lot of those Filipino creatures intentionally so that Filipino readers would recognize some of the creatures that they grew up with um, and they have, and they've really embraced and celebrated the, the reimagining, which is important to me. How did you grow up with them? You mentioned that uh, storytelling is such a part of a Filipino culture. Yes. So I grew up mostly, my mother is a fantastic storyteller. Now, when I was young and growing up, of course, I didn't want to listen to any of the stories, but I started to appreciate them, of course, as I got older. But she would tell a lot of stories, mostly about her upbringing and, and growing up in the Philippines. And she also told me many, many saint stories. So my mother's a very devout Catholic, as are many Filipinos. And, I mean, to this day, she'll tell me new stories that I hadn't heard before and many that I already have. And one thing that that taught me is these stories are so full of pain and suffering, but triumph at the end. And a lot of them have messages of compassion and empathy and not doing things just for oneself, but for a greater purpose, whether it's community or what you believe in, etc. And that lesson, although I'm certainly not... Um, as devout a Catholic as my mother, or not even particularly religious. But those lessons, you know, they speak across belief systems, and it's important, right? So those lessons that she taught me have really found their way in each of my books, and in this book as well. I could really see that mirrored in Leilani, too, because that sort of, as you said, stories of the saints, there was one of the, the themes is this blind faith, right? I don't know what I'm doing or why I'm doing this or why I'm being asked this, but I have faith that it's going to. And, and you could feel that. It was like Leilani, too. She didn't know what she was getting into. But yet she just kept going, thinking this is going to somehow go somewhere. Yes, because she had a, her, a greater purpose of, um, you know, the people that she loved. And that was her motive. And to me, that's, I mean, what more important motive could there be than something outside of yourself? And one thing that I wanted readers to take away and hopefully relate to with Lilani is that everything she does in the book, she does out of love, compassion, and empathy for other people, especially in a village that has not been very kind to her, but also her mother and her best friend and people that she loves, and nothing that she does is ever for self-gain or self-glory, which I think is very important. She's hard on herself. She is. She is. She second-guesses herself. She blames herself for things which aren't her fault, and I think that a lot of young people, I know when I was a young person I did that often, but I know that a lot of young people go through that, especially at that age. You know, she's 12 years old. And obviously she's not growing up in a contemporary society that we know now, but 
12-year-olds can be very hard on themselves because they're trying to navigate a really complicated environment. And of course, they're always second-guessing themselves. And people are second-guessing them. And this, the social structure is confusing. And so all of that informed my telling of Lalani and her story. You've talked a lot about the fact that you care as much about your young male characters as your young female characters because there there is sort of a shortage of literature, I should say, of, of what boys go through, too, who don't fit the, the typical. Yes, and I think there, there's been a tremendous movement, which is great, of um, more representation of strong female characters. But the flip side of that is that gender stereotypes hurt girls and boys because There's also many boys who are shy, who are not good at sports, who aren't very strong, who are sensitive, and those are all things that boys aren't supposed to be. And that's also a struggle. And I think it's important for young readers, boys who fit that that description, but also girls and parents and educators who are reading these books to see literature that represents that side of the coin as well, because it, it's. I feel like it's a little. It's a little harder to find those, those boy, those really sensitive boy characters. And we're seeing a lot more books, thankfully, with very strong independent girl characters. So we we have to remember the other side of the coin. You've talked very candidly about how many of your uh, novels and your characters and stories are rooted in your own childhood experiences of of what it felt to to be different in a community where everyone really kind of looked the same. Uh, you grew up in Louisiana, is that right? Yes, I grew up in southwest Louisiana. And the neighborhood where I grew up, you know, there wasn't an immigrant population. And the Asian population was very small. And I was definitely the only Filipino um, at my school. And it's it's really difficult because when you're when you're that age, you're already unsure of yourself and self-conscious and you feel like there's a spotlight on you at all times and you're embarrassed even when there's nothing to be embarrassed about and to have um, the added uh, layer of otherness on top of the otherness that already exists just by being 11 or 12 can be really challenging especially if if you're a kid who is not naturally independent or outspoken, I was very introspective and I was a very quiet kid. Yeah, some kids can work it to their advantage right, exactly. and actually be the star of the class, right? Yes. Um, but yeah, it's, it really is so much to do with who you are personality-wise. Yes. Really. And so I was always trying to figure out how, how, do, how can I be that kid who is, is very proud of who they are and the kid who you know, volunteers right away when it's time to give a speech in front of the class. You know, how do I be that kid? I could never quite figure it out, but the reason I couldn't figure it out is because I was my own person. And I think young people are always trying to figure out how to be that other kid who seems to be doing it better or seems to know what's going on, when really nobody knows what's going on. And my books, I hope, the intention is that young people know that they don't have to be that other person. They don't have to fix something that's not broken. They just have to be the best versions of who they are instead of becoming someone totally different. You have a a video out there at the 2018 National Book Festival, which is really funny. Um, I encourage everyone to watch it, (laughs) where you talk. And and it was funny because you talk sun in, perms, 
and there was oh in gym class and yes. it's, it could have been my story could have been so many I remember the sun in years right 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 yes definitely <laughs> and uh when you see that speech, you see just how universal those feelings are and experiences. And that one of your things that you talk a lot about is you're not alone. Yes. And I think that's what that's the the greatest gift that books give is that, it, it you know, we tell it shows young people that they're not alone, even when they feel very alone. And, you know, whenever I was in middle school and I was picked last for the teams in basketball that that's a very palpable feeling right oh, because yeah, you can, I mean I can picture the gym I can picture oh, yeah. where the, the other kids are I mean every detail of it is, stays with you yes absolutely and and then when you get out there like to play basketball for example you don't want anyone to pass you the ball because you don't want to embarrass yourself but then when nobody passes you the ball, then you feel bad because nobody's passing you the ball. And that's kind of what it's like in middle school and, and what it's like to be a kid. Um, there never seems to be the right answer. You're just constantly trying to figure it out. And in the midst of all that, you're also trying to act like you don't care because you don't want to be the kid who cares. You have to be act casual or act like, oh, it doesn't bother me, um, when really everything is bothering you. And one of the gifts that books give young people is it creates a safe space and kind of a bubble for them to explore all these emotions that they're having and all these embarrassments and um, questions um, in a safe space. You receive a lot of uh, communication from your young readers and they come up to you at your signings, et cetera. And you've talked about the fact you've had a lot of kids say things to you about that. Uh, what's that like for you to to hear a child sort of verbalize something that you didn't even really know how to verbalize back then and didn't have a way to? It, it actually makes me feel very, very special that young people trust me and feel safe to tell me things. I've had times when I've been at book signings and kids will just hug me, you know, and, and it feels... Um, it's the greatest feeling because it means that they feel safe. At what point in your own life did you start to realize these things that you made you feel sort of different and and, and, and you know insecure um, were going to become your superpower later on? Great question. So it definitely started, I would say, when I became a parent so of a daughter. And anyone who has children know that when you have a child, it completely changes your worldview. And I thought, I want to teach my daughter to be proud of who she is. I want to teach her to speak up for herself. I want to teach her to be all the things that I felt like I wasn't, because parents always want their kids to be better than them. But how am I going to teach those things if, if I haven't embraced those things yet? So I think it took maturity. I think it took a different mindset, a different perspective. I think it took hindsight, you know, because you look back and you think, oh, that wasn't important at all. So I think it, it, it took all those things. I think one of the things, too, you realize that, it, that going through that yourself taught you compassion and just how valuable that is. Uh, and that's something you've talked a lot about um, as a quality that, it, it, that's important in your characters. Yes, because I, f- I feel like, you know, when I was growing up, it felt like it felt like a liability to be so sensitive. You know, I was sensitive about myself. I was sensitive about uh, toward others. 
Uh, my feelings would get hurt easily and I would feel embarrassed or hurt for other people. And it just, it, it was a very difficult way to go through life because you're, con you're, you know, you're sensitive, you're overly sensitive to everything. So it certainly did not feel like a strength or something to be proud of. But as I've gotten older and, and seen the things that we celebrate um, in our society, which, which aren't always the things we should be celebrating, um, it makes me realize that young people absolutely need to know that kindness and compassion and empathy are the root of humanity and what set us apart. And those things should be championed. What did help you persevere and, and hang in there through those years? Honestly, it was uh, writing in books because no matter what was going on in my life, I knew that one day I'm going to write books and people are going to read my books and none of this will matter anymore because, you know, I'm, I'm going to follow my dream. And anytime I got really depressed, which was often as an adolescent, I would think about that. I would think it, it was my escape to say, okay, well, one day this is going to happen. And one day I'm going to move away from here and, you know, live in New York City. Of course, I never moved to New York City. But, you know, when you're a kid, that's the dream, <laughs> right? I'm going to live in New York City and I'm going to be a big famous author. So really, books really did save me. Coming up in a moment, we'll get into Aaron and Trotta Kelly's motivations for being a writer and path to becoming one, even some of the process of how she puts pen to paper, like when she actually writes. I've tried to do schedules before. I thought that it, what real writers do is they write from 10 to noon or whatever the time may be. But whenever I would try to do that, it felt very much like I was doing an assignment. It kind of felt like homework and I've never liked homework. So uh, I would sit there and try to force something and anytime you're trying to force it, it's not, it's not going to come out the way you hope. So I decided I'm just gonna forget that and I'll just write when I feel like it. That and a reading from her book, Leilani of the Distant Sea, when talking with authors continues from HEC Media. Educate Today offers an ever-growing library of the highest quality video resources, curriculum materials, and interactive programs, all of which are designed to challenge thinking, inspire creativity, and empower learning of students, educators, parents, and lifelong learners. And you can find out more about all these programs by going online to educate.today. That's educate.today. One of the things I notice too, whenever we have a children's author or a middle grade author is uh, for teachers who are at these events, it's like seeing a rock star for them. Uh, it's so funny. You can tell they're even like nervous. That's true. And what's weird is for me, the educators are the rock stars because they are the ones who, if they love your book, if they embrace your book, they're the ones who are out there promoting it and supporting it. So it's, it's kind of, it's a very symbiotic relationship. So I always get excited when I see them, and then they get excited when they see authors. So it's very much a, a you know, a symbiotic thing. So this is, it's a beautiful book. It's just so lyrical, and how do you kind of come up with these beautiful lines? It's, for this book, it was a very different process because it is fantasy, so you don't have a ready-made world to draw from, you know? I don't need to explain what school is like because that's obviously, we all know what that's like. But for this new world, I have to create the, the picture for the reader. So it takes a lot of pre-planning and work to figure out 
okay, how does the society work? What kind of jobs do they have? What are their resources? What kinds of things do they believe in? And then from that, it, it just involves a lot of outlining. I tend to plot all my books beforehand. So I think for this particular one, um, it was about 15,000 words just of planning beforehand. And then once I have my notebook, because I write all my first drafts by hand, I just start writing. And whatever the manuscript calls for, whether it's figurative language or um, not a lot of metaphorical language, it just kind of it happens and unfolds. Because I've spent so much time already with the world and the story before I ever start writing. So once I start writing, it's kind of it's already there. It's just getting out of my head and onto the page. I've heard you talk about the notebook, and I've seen you, you post some of your notebooks on, on your website, too. How did that start? Was that from the very beginning for you, uh, your very first? Yes. So I started writing when I was about eight years old, when I was very little. And, you know, I would read books, and then I realized, oh, these are words on paper. So all I need is paper and words, and then I can write my own books. And that's how it all started. Of course, back then, not everyone had a computer in their home or a typewriter. Not that I probably would have used those things anyway, because I was in my room, as I was often as a kid, and just started writing by putting pencil to paper. And to this day, that's how I, I start all my manuscripts. I feel like the more senses you engage when you're writing, uh, so the sight of the ink, I use different colors, ink, the smell of the paper and the ink and the feel of the pen on the paper and the sound of the paper turning, all those things I, I feel like make the process so much more personal. And just sitting down at a computer and writing feels very impersonal to me and cold. Uh, I know all writers are different, but you know I have, I have to have a notebook to start. It feels more like a creation. Exactly, yeah. And, and you can cross things out, you can make notes in the margin, you can draw a doodle if you want. You can draw an arrow and say insert this scene here and you know with a computer you're very limited by whatever the program is but with a notebook you're really not limited at all and I feel like it's important to engage creativity whenever possible so that's why I like to use different colored ink sometimes I'll turn the page a different direction and write horizontally or write diagonally just to engage as much creativity as I can. Do you find, too, some of your really special lines in a book? Maybe those, you know, there's always these sort of, sort of tentpole sentences that, that wake the reader up a bit, or um, do they come to you more in that process uh, or while you're actually, you know, doing the pounding of writing? That's or, a great question. I think both ways. I think it happens both ways, but probably more so in the notebooks because Usually when I take the notebook and I, I transfer it onto a computer, what I'm, tra what I'm typing in during that first transfer is more um, teasing out and filling in the, the holes and, you know, growing it. Um, but the bare bones and the bare ideas and the heart is always in that notebook. So those tentpole sentences are probably going to be found more so in that process. One thing that struck me that you've mentioned in other interviews is that you don't do that sort of scheduled writing that you hear a lot of authors sort of swear by. You write when you want to. Yes. How does that work for you and how does that look sort of? Um, it looks a bit chaotic because <laughs> it's not a schedule. I've tried to do schedules before 
And especially whenever I was just starting out and trying to get published, I thought that it, what real writers do is they write from 10 to noon or whatever the time may be. But whenever I would try to do that, it felt very much like I was doing an assignment. It kind of felt like homework. And I've never liked homework. So uh, I would sit there and try to force something. And anytime you're trying to force it, it's not, it's not going to come out the way you hope. So I decided I'm just going to forget that and I'll just write when I feel like it. And the good news is I, I often feel like it. And I'll sit there and spend hours at a time writing a lot and then maybe little pieces here and there. But then somehow it all just comes together. So when I teach writers, I encourage them to, of course, if you want to learn what other writers' processes are, that's fine. But don't feel like you have to follow one way. You have to find your own path. Because people have jobs, they have children, they have, they're tired at the end of the day. So it can be hard to keep a set schedule for a lot of people. I find when I do a set schedule, I do a lot of online shopping instead of actually exactly. writing. <laughs> That's exactly right. <laughs> yes. Your story also involves a lot of perseverance, right? You had your daughter at a young age when a lot of kids are still, I mean, not kids, but young people are still figuring out their career path, and you were kind of juggling both. Yes. So I had, I was a single mother, and I had my daughter. I was only 19. And so I was raising her, going to school, college, and working. And it took me 10 years to get my bachelor's degree because I could only take a, a class here and there. And what's funny is I, I never really thought of it as perseverance. It was just kind of th that's what you do to get where you want to go. But l looking back on it, of course, I had also had a very strong support system, which is also very important. But looking back on it, I think, uh, well, how did I do all that stuff? <laughs> I'm still not sure, but um, yeah. But even to this day, I, I I tend to have a lot of things going on, and and may, maybe that's yeah, one day I'll probably have a fabulous breakdown. But for right now, <laughs> I just like to have a lot of things going on, and maybe that's what helped me be productive. Right? right, right. I wonder too if having your daughter at a young age forced you to focus. Uh, you didn't have time to sort of think about what do I want to do? Why don't I try this Absolutely. for a year? It was like you only had so many hours and that's absolutely right yeah and, and I really wanted to be a good mother even though I was young and had no idea what I was doing although sometimes you don't know what you're doing no matter what age you are very true uh, um, but you know I was very aware that that young people don't ask to be brought into this world so if you bring them into the world it's on you to make sure that you give them everything they need to survive, um, and that was very, very important to me. And I felt like I had made a lot of mistakes in my life growing up, and I didn't want her to make those same mistakes, just as any, just with any parent, you know. So it definitely gave me a new perspective on, on many, many things. How did you know, or how did you manage just helping her feel proud of who she was, since that was something that you had struggled with and that so many kids do struggle with? It must have been an awesome sort of responsibility to feel like, okay, now I, I have a daughter, too, who's... Yes. You know what it was? It took a lot of self-checks. In other words, I think there's things in our society that are second nature to us that probably shouldn't be. Things like your weight or wearing makeup and how you're supposed to look and how you're supposed to present yourself. And 
whenever I caught myself falling into a narrative that was traditional, potentially dangerous narrative, that's when I would stop myself and remember what it was like when I was growing up to hear the same things reinforced, you know? So um, if she was worried about her weight at age 11, as many young girls, even younger than that, are already worried about how much they weigh and what they look like, that's when you say, okay, this is a time to, to have a conversation and talk about this. Or if someone at school says something, this is a time to talk about it and um, let her know that she is in charge of her own body, her own sense of self, her own sense of self, self-worth comes from within. I think especially for girls, when they enter middle school and beyond, their self-worth starts to be valued by other people. So I wanted to make sure she was aware of that and aware when it was happening and aware of what she could do to navigate through it, you know, as unfazed as possible. When I look at your interviews and anything where you've given speeches, um, you seem so grateful for your life and what you're getting to do. It just comes across just a sort of level of joy and contentment that you are doing exactly what you feel like you were put here to do. Thank you for that. I I hope it does come across because I am joyful and grateful and appreciative and I try not to take myself too seriously and I try to be, um, try to realize the gifts that I have. And I think about that little eight-year-old girl who, you know, said, one day I'm going to write a bestseller and I'm going to be just like Judy Bloom." And and to think that that was my goal and now I'm out here, you know, that's why I love book signing so much with, with young people because I think someone someone actually has this book, especially when the kids, you sign it and a lot of kids will pick it up and they'll hug it as they're walking away and they're so happy. And just to think, wow, my signature means something to someone that much. Um, I try never to lose sight of that and I, I don't, I hope I never do, you know, I mean, there's days when I'm just walking around and I think, wow, I won the Newberry Medal. How did that happen? And um, years from now, I hope I'm still doing that because, you know, I never want to lose sight of, of how fortunate I am. And um, so, yeah, thank you for that. Thank you so much, Erin and Tarada Kelly, for joining us. It's been so nice to talk to you. Thank you. Erin and Trotta Kelly on realizing her dream of becoming an author and what it's been like to walk that path toward her goal. Now, to close our podcast, we'll listen to Erin and Trotta Kelly read a passage from her book, Leilani of the Distant Sea. When Veda ran off, Cade was at her heels. He was there to hear the gong. He saw the first flight of birds just like she did, but not Hetsby. He had been ready to follow. He had his feet pointed in that direction even, but something stopped him a break in the mist. His heart thundered. What if it was Cole clutching desperately on a piece of driftwood, and here he was, alone? He squinted his eyes for a better look, a long gaze over his shoulder. No, it wasn't a piece of driftwood. It was a ship. He would have recognized it anywhere, even from a hundred miles away. It was the boat that would never sail, the one left for scrap. But it didn't make any sense. His boat had been discarded with the others, destined for nothing. He turned around. How had his boat managed to crawl across the shore and drift into the current by itself? 
But now he saw that was not what had happened at all. There was someone inside the boat, a small outline that came into focus as the fog slipped away. Here was the dark hair. Here were the wide-set eyes. Here was the round face. Lalani, he said. That's Newbery Award-winning author Erin Entrada Kelly reading from her book, Leilani of the Distant Sea, from publisher Harper Collins during our interview with her in September of 2019. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Talking with Authors. Remember, you can watch most of the episodes of this program by going online to hecmedia.org. Also, be sure to follow us on social media. Just search for Talking with Authors on all social media platforms. And if you haven't done so yet, please rate and review this program wherever you get your podcasts. The host of the video version of this program was Brenda Madden. Photography was by Peter Foggy and Ken Calcaterra. Audio by Ben Smith. Editor and graphics by Carrie Marks. Supervising producer was Julie Winkle. Production support by Jane Ballou and Christina Chastain. And HEC Media Executive Director is Dennis Riggs. The Talking with Authors podcast executive producer is Christina Chastain. Podcast editor was Ben Smith, and I'm Rod Milam, your podcast producer and host. Again, we thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next time. This is HEC Media. You wake up, you get dressed, you prepare for a day of challenging and inspiring young minds. But maybe all you get is frustration and anxiety. You are a teacher. In the Classroom Matters podcast, we discuss the good, the bad, and the ugly of education. We talk to people such as Kim Bearden, co-founder of the Ron Clark Academy, Ken Williams, creator of Unfold the Soul, Teacher of the Year Beth Davey, and so many more insightful educators. Because your voice matters, your experience matters, your classroom matters. Classroom Matters with Christy Houle, a new podcast from Educate.today. Subscribe and download now.